if you're a season ticket holder, and then there'll be some specialty programming. So yesterday it was Mike Mayock and myself for an hour, and it was a deep, deep dive into the Raiders. I'm hoping to get some of the audio so we can play it here because it was basically fans asking him questions. But Mike Mayock covered everything. I mean everything with the fans about the offseason, free agency, who they brought in, philosophy of Coach Gruden and what he's trying to do. And clearly a draft recap is right before we hit the air yesterday, they signed Alex Leatherwood to his rookie contract, which was a good thing, something they were looking forward to doing. And that all that all those numbers slot in a specific order. And he'll be the right tackle. He'll be a starting offensive lineman for the Raiders, hopefully for a long time to come. He's very important. Uh, Mike spent a lot of time talking about Trayvon Merrig and what he means at the safety position. But the big takeaway that I'm getting from Mike Mayock, who's very transparent, what I love about Mike Mayock is he's tremendous with the media, he's tremendous on television, and then he has a job as an evaluator. And every fan and member of the media picks him apart for every player that he's taken. You know, some guys have been doing this for 20 years for a team. Mike's been doing it 20 years on television as a former player and in the media. But he's only done it a couple of years now for the Silver and Black. And I think he's drafted some really good players. He has. He's drafted good players and players that they believe in are core players for the foundation of the John Gruden-led team in Vegas. Now, the problem is Mike is spending a lot of time going back to last year's draft, the one before this, and trying to remind people that Damon Arnett, Jonathan Abram, Cleland Farrell, all the players that were around in his first draft are players that they still believe in. And I believe that they believe in these players. But the problem is they haven't popped yet. And they haven't come into the league and they haven't shined at the level that the Raiders would like him to play at. But all of these players who are young are under salary control. They're making limited money on their rookie contracts. And they're going to be here for a while. And the clock is ticking on them. So what the Raiders did this offseason after changing up their offensive line and spending more money on the defensive side of the ball, is they brought in players in case the guys I were talking about, Damon Arnett, John Abram, Cleland Farrell, if those guys don't get it real quickly, if they don't start playing at a much higher level quickly, the Raiders have a plan in place to replace them or at least give other guys an opportunity to compete. Uh, Mike spoke a lot about competition and how much competition there is, and it's the most I've seen when it comes to good competition since John Gruden's come back. In this fourth year with Derek Carr, the level of competition and guys trying to get on the field, and we know that there's guys who are going to start and they're not coming off the field. You know, Colton Miller's your left tackle. There's no one competing for him at that position. All right, Richie Incognito, if healthy, is going to play left guard. Henry Ruggs is your starting wide receiver, one of them, depending on what happens with Julio Jones, which I'll get to. Darren Waller isn't going anywhere. It doesn't look like there's going to be a change at the linebacker position. Nicholas Morrow, Nick Witkowski, Corey Littleton, all slotted to start at the linebacker position. And then the secondary, there's going to be some turnover. And the Raiders went out and brought in Casey Hayward, the cornerback from the Chargers, and Trayvon Merrick, who's going to play safety and must start at safety because he was a high draft pick in the second round. He's not there to develop. He's not there to play special teams. He's there to play free safety and be a ball hawk and to do his job because Jonathan Abram can't play the back end at the level that the Raiders thought yet 
but Mike Mayock went out of his way to tell everybody that he's the type of player. Mike Mayock said that he's the type of player that they really believe that he's been out there, Jonathan Abram, and he's going to do everything right, everything right to stay on the field and do a good job. So I really had the depth chart in front of me yesterday with Mike Mayock, and we were going through some of the players, and I started to check off players that he spoke more about than other players. And obviously it was a rookie draft recap, but he was really excited to talk about this defensive tackle, Solomon Thomas, former third pick overall who he believes has a twitch, a twitch that's going to get him off the ball quicker, and he's going to make some plays. So he talked about him a bunch. He also talked about Darius Phylon, who comes in on the defensive line, who's another twitch player that he thinks is going to have a really good season coming in front of him. And also, as I wrote down here in my notes, the player that he, I thought, was as passionate. Mike's passionate about everything. Very passionate. He was really passionate about Nicholas Morrow. A guy that I didn't greatly believe in when he came in because I just thought he was another Raider guy. He was another Raider linebacker because they didn't have good linebackers. And he was going to play, and let's see what happens. But Morrow proved that he is now a starter. And he could play at this level. So, again, after spending an hour with Mike Mayock yesterday, my big takeaways were this. They have a plan, and they're very comfortable with the plan. They do have a plan. And the plan is a mixture of what I've been telling you about for years on Raider Nation Radio. It is a plan where they're trying to match the roster of Kansas City. They have Raiders have Henry Ruggs. They have you know, great young players like Tyreek Hill that can move quickly. They have Travis Kelsey. The Raiders have Waller. Right? They have certain players that they can match up with Kansas City, and the Raiders are building a unit behind character. A lot of Alabama guys, a lot of Clemson guys, guys who played at big programs who know how to be professional and are supposed to come in and do their job. And with the attendance overall and the lack of this team being in the police plotter and getting in trouble and the fact that they want to be Raiders and they enjoy living here, I think that's important for me to share with you. Obviously, you only care about them winning. You want them to win games, but it's a good group. You hear that in hockey all the time. Peter DeBoer says, our group, we have a good group. Well, this group for the Raiders, I believe, is a very good group. They're a bunch of guys who are going to go out there and play their ass off for Mark Davis and John Gruden and Mike Mayock. Now, every once in a while, someone will slip through the cracks, like Trent Brown. Trent Brown was a fraud. He just wanted the money. The Raiders rolled the dice on him, and they failed. The due diligence on him was a guy that played great as he won a Super Bowl with New England and wasn't the guy that the Niners released. He he was going to be the guy that brought that Patriot way to the offensive line. All that Trent Brown did was steal money, didn't want to be a Raider, didn't care about being a Raider, didn't work out, lazy, lazy, lazy. Reportedly didn't even want to work out with the team. Reportedly, and this is not from Mike Mayock, But reportedly, Trent Brown did not want to work out the team with the team because he was embarrassed by the shape he was in. Let me repeat that again. Reports are from me, JT the Brick, that Trent Brown did not feel comfortable working out with his teammates because of how how out of shape he was and the way he looked. Okay, When you sign the guy, you don't think that's going to be a problem. But after you see the guy and you see him over a couple of months and he won't show up for workouts and he's sitting on the sideline wearing a sweatshirt, 
you get the you get the ability. You, you look at his availability and you say, this guy screwed everything up for us. And the Raiders got to own that mistake. They have to. They, they're the ones who brought him in. Raiders own that mistake. So now the Raiders are trying to do it with a young offensive line with Andre James, Richie Incognito, Denzel Good, Nick Martin, Colt Miller, John Simpson. And you look at this team and you say to yourself, is this good enough with Alex Leatherwood and Jimmy Morrissey, who's more of a project on the back end of this pass draft? Can this offensive line hold the line long enough so Carr can get the ball out? So that's it. Uh, I don't have Mike Mayock on today. We did an hour yesterday. It's always pleasant. I have a lot of respect for Mike Mayock. And again, uh, working with the team, I, all I can do is open up the phones and ask you today as we open up the show, your impressions of Mike Mayock and the type of players he's bringing in now and the level of competition. Because the roster is almost completely set unless there's a blockbuster dr- uh, trade coming. Uh, and could that happen where it could change the roster? A trade would mean that players would leave and or draft picks and they would bring in another player. So I want to I get your confidence level with Mike Mayock. I'm confident, confident with Mike Mayock because I know him. I'm, I was confident with Reggie McKenzie. Great guy. A Raider player. Once a Raider, always a player. But I understand that fans are going to be at times triggered and they're going to want certain things to happen. It is not easy being a GM in this league and trying to scout players and bring in players during COVID. This has been a really tough time in the history of this league to do what Mike Mayock does. And I think that Mike Mayock is doing his best job to rebuild this team with players that when they get it right and the roster is set and they bring in maybe one or two more players on defense, just one or two, that this team will be balanced on both sides of the ball, special teams, offense, and defense. And they could compete for years in Vegas, for years, to win a Super Bowl. 702-365-9200 if you want to get in. Remember, the show started 13 minutes ago. It doesn't start 13 minutes from now. I do two hours because I'm solo. I would never do three or four, especially now. It would be insanity. So you get two hours of me every day. I go balls out. I want to hear from you on any Raider-related topic. But I don't do Raiders radio when there's no Raider news. I do a sports talk show. And the other second topic in the monologue is what happened to the Golden Knights last night. As I said, my wife and son went to the game. Yesterday it was my son's 20th birthday. We got him tickets to the game. And they went and had a blast. I thought Flurry gave up two very weak goals that were uncharacteristic of him. Very surprised by that. And the Golden Knights, once again, can't get it done at home. They can't get it done at home in a closeout de- a game. $80 million over three years. What is going on? When you look at what this team, what this team has been trying to do and what they need to do going forward, with the roster, the size of the roster, and how they're trying to finish off teams. Every season, one on the road in four years, never at home. They had a golden opportunity last night, a golden opportunity to win and not have to get on an airplane and go back to Minnesota, and they couldn't get it done. With Marc-Andre Fleury in goal, I think the injuries are starting to pile up with Pacioretty. There are other guys who are banged up more than you know, and it's starting to take... A hit on him. And the other big thing that concerns me for the Golden Knights is that Colorado is sitting back, comfortably resting, as the Golden Knights are getting on a plane going back to Minneapolis to play the Wild, who are very good, and this team gives them fits. If you were at the game last night, you saw the fact that this team gives them fits 
for their style of defense that they play, their speed, and everything that they do. So what a blown opportunity. As Stone opened up the game with a goal to give them a 1-0 lead, I thought they were off to the races. Tuck sets up Stone, closing in. He scores! Listen to this crowd. Mark Stone rips it in from the left circle. Vegas has a 1-0 lead. There it is, Dan Duva on the call. Let's move to the Greenway goal that gave Minnesota a 3-1 lead, and this is when it looked like the game was slipping away for VGK. Greenway comes up, right side, he shoots, Flurry the save, rebound, score! Flurry made the initial save, but he could not squeeze it. It rattled around near the right post. Greenway, first man to play it. He had two cracks at the right post, and he got it through, and it's a 3-1 Minnesota lead. Yeah, that was it. Right at that point, you knew the Golden Knights would get back into the game. I love the play of Alec Martinez. This power play goal had the fortress as loud as it's been all year. We'll try Petrangelo. Martinez scores! There's a big scrap after the goal. Alec Martinez, a power play goal, has the Knights within one with 10-17 to go in the second period. Uh, so that's it. They end up losing the game on an empty net goal. Peter DeBoer after the game still thinks, up three games to two, that they have them where they want. They just got to go finish off the series now. We, we knew this wasn't going to be easy coming in. I, I think if anyone had said, hey, uh, at the start of the series, you've got we're going to give you an opportunity to go into Minnesota game six and, and win the series, uh, and game seven is going to be at home, you know, we would have taken that. So... You know, we worked to put ourselves in a good spot. We had an opportunity tonight. We uh, we worked hard, didn't get it done. We'll regroup and look to get it done in game six. Yeah, I don't think there's any need for panic, but there was a lot of panic in Vegas when the Golden Knights lost game one and they were down in game two. Believe me, there was a lot of panic when it, it became a team that the season was on the brink in the first round, and then they were exceptional absolutely exceptional on the road to put themselves in this position. If you went to the game last night, if you're a hockey fan, if you got a comment on why this team can't finish off series at home, I'd like to know. I'd like to know why this team, when they have the opportunity to close out series, can't do it at home, considering they have one of the best home ice advantages in all of hockey. The other big storyline with the game last night had to do with the president of the Oakland A's, Dave Cavill, who was in town on his carnival barking tour, completely disrespecting the Oakland A fan base. And Cavill put out a tweet 16 hours ago. Wow, Stanley Cup playoffs, Golden Knights. There are 785 comments under that tweet. And if you get a chance to read those, they are, they are amazing. So now A's fans know that they have someone in front of them I mean, even the biggest critics of Mark Davis, who I've handled and taken their calls over the years on the radio, understood that Mark Davis was trying to keep the team initially in Oakland, was really trying to keep the team in Oakland. If you don't understand the A's signing the 10-year lease and undercutting the Raiders and what the Raiders were trying to do, I'm not going to be able to convince you on that. Then we're going to agree to disagree, and I'll say that you don't know enough about the story like I do behind the scenes. Or you're going to say Mark Davis was looking to leave Oakland all the time, and we're not going to agree on that. Because I was involved in a lot of conversations where I heard people much higher up the food chain on me break this down to me personally. But that gets back to this 
Carnival Barker and Dave Cavill, who is now here in Clark County uh, going out trying to pitch baseball and the potential move of the Oakland Athletics to Vegas, which I don't think would work. I don't think it would work with this brand because their ownership sucks. And the president of this team is a complete scam artist who's trying to just right now use leverage. I mean, what was the leverage with Mark Davis? He had Bank of America for half a billion. He had the help of Sheldon Adelson, the win. Everybody around town wanted the Raiders here. No one that I'm talking to around town, and I talk to a lot of people, want the A's here in town. Unless they feel like they could get a piece of the deal, they're involved in the land, they want to bring up the Henderson, they want to do something on the old Rio site, which is still the Rio the last time I looked. And they're trying to figure it out. So Dave Cavill last night tweeted this out, and A's fans went bonkers. Bonkers as the A's actually lost by the same score, 4-2. to two. And you can shoot a bazooka through the Oakland Coliseum in a lot of those sections where there's no one there. But Dave Cavill wasn't with the team. He was with the Golden Knights inside the fortress there with his camera phone. So I think that's a really good topic because we're on in the Bay Area and how you think the A's are handling this. Uh, Dave Cavill officially lost the room yesterday. A lot of sharp people know and knew that already as he's the president of the Oakland Athletics. A lot of people in the inside the organization, former legends and players, don't like him. They understand he's a carnival barker. He's trying to play a game of three-card Monty in the Bay Area. He continued to lie to the fans of the Oakland A's about the prospects of doing a stadium in Lake Merritt or doing another one, Laney College, or whatever they wanted to do anything on the waterfront, that he was not the guy to get this done. And now he wants to come in to Vegas after Mark Davis came to Vegas and Bill Foley came to Vegas. And no one wants this clown here. No one that I'm hearing from. And A's fans are furious. So if you're an Oakland Raider fan, you might be an Oakland A's fan. And you got this guy now. And it took a long, long time for Raider fans to come around on Vegas. And I would tell them all, when the, when the deal happened and I knew the deal was happening, I'd tell them all, that's my buddies in the black hole. Anybody you want to ask, I'd look everybody in the eye and say, look, everybody wants to be in Oakland. It's a shame it doesn't work. You have garbage politicians who know nothing about sports. They disrespect the Raiders. They're not looking to work with Mark Davis. I said that over and over again and said, hey, figure out Vegas when you want. More and more fans from Oakland are coming to Vegas to go on the stadium tour, visiting the new stadium, taking pictures outside the team facility in Henderson, and seeing now that their franchise, which they never wanted to see leave Oakland, left for specific reasons, mostly political, and got to Vegas now, and now they have this beautiful opportunity to be great again financially and have a distinct advantage over other teams and be one of the wealthiest teams in the history of sports in the next five to ten years, all because of the sharp move and how it played out. And for the A's to come in on the back door with their little bucket coming in here and thinking that they could do the same thing after the fights that they've had with Mark Davis in public and behind the scenes in Oakland, and then for the president to show up at a hockey game last night? You know, Mark Davis isn't big on Twitter, never was. Mark Davis sat behind Flurry for years now. And he bought the Aces. He loves the Aces. He really respects the Golden Knights. And he's not out there throwing it in everybody's face the way Cavill did last night. So I thought that was important to get into the monologue, if you have an opinion on that. 
9,200. We're in the podcasting months of this show, I guess. I think those are three strong topics to start off. And now I'll get to the biggest one really quickly before our guest. I'll play this next hour. Here was Aaron Rodgers last night with Kenny Mayne on Kenny Mayne's final sports center, where I think he made it clear to everybody that he's not coming back to the Green Bay Packers. Here's what he said. It never been about the draft pick, uh, picking Jordan. I love Jordan. He's a great kid. Um, you know, he, he a lot of fun to, to work together. Uh, I love the coaching staff, love my teammates. You know, I love the fan base in Green Bay. It's incredible, incredible 16 years. It's just kind of about a, a, a philosophy, you know, and and maybe forgetting that it is about the people that make the thing go. It's about it's about character. It's about culture. It's about doing things the right way. And a lot of this was put in motion last year, and uh, the wrench was just kind of thrown into it when I won MVP and played uh, the way I played last year. So this is just kind of I think uh, the the spill out of all that, but. Look, man, it is about the people, and that's the most important thing. Green Bay has always been about the people, from Curly Lambeau uh, being owner and founder to the 60s with Lombardi and Bart Starr and all those incredible names, to the 90s teams with Coach Holmgren and Farvey and the Minister of Defense to the, the run that we've been on. It's about, it's about the people. Man, there is a lot of meat on the bone to talk about there. Aaron Rodgers, no doubt about it, once out. He wants out of Green Bay. He despises the general manager and the president. He says he loves everyone else, including the quarterback who was drafted behind him to replace him. So I'll get into that next hour, that his ego is massive. And Aaron Rodgers is still slightly in play, slightly in play for the Raiders. Not because the Raiders need him. They have Derek Carr, who most of us are very fine with. But the fact that the Raiders block Aaron Rodgers from going to Denver if you watched this last night and you listened to radio today or TV, I could tell you that they're really excited in Denver because the fans of the Denver Broncos think he's one foot out the door, and there's two great fits for him. It's either Denver or the Washington Redskins, who are now the Washington Football Club. And what are the Raiders going to do? If he goes to Washington, fine. But what decisions do the Raiders need to make as an organization if we get to June and the conversation heats up about Aaron Rodgers really being available at 37 and the prospects of him being in the division with the Denver Broncos. Holy crap. That would be a nightmare, okay? It would be a nightmare to have to face the reigning MVP and then the MVP before that in the Super Bowl in Patrick Mahomes and face those two guys four times out of the 17 games. You knew, You know that. I just happen to say it. I'd like your reaction to Aaron Rodgers and what he said last night. And what was your takeaway? Man, his ego is tremendous. Monologue brought to you by our good friends at Remy Martin. Team up for excellence. Whenever I'm talking X's and O's, I have a Remy Martin sidecar in my hand on the weekend. Van McElroy. I think he's a Raider legend. His resume proves it. He'll join us next. Once a Raider, always a Raider. Let's face it, we haven't rushed the quarterback and we haven't turned the football over. I mean, those are two things if you want to be a good defense you have to do. We have not done it, and we think these three guys can help us do it. It was Mike Mayock. I spent an hour with Mike Mayock yesterday. Hopefully we have some of that audio from later in the week as we continue on. JT, Raider Nation Radio. 
as we keep rolling on here. And I'm excited. I'm excited for what I heard yesterday. You know, I'm optimistic in the offseason with the Raiders. I think the Raiders have some energy going on, which is really important. And they have good players. Now the players from last year need to pop. This JT the Brick Legends moment is brought to you by the M Resort, the official team headquarters hotel of the Las Vegas Raiders. Played for the LA Raiders from 82 to 1990. A Super Bowl champion, a two-time Pro Bowler, a two-time All-American. Van McElroy, kind enough to join us. Van, I really appreciate you doing this. How are you? I'm good, JT. And you, brother? I couldn't be better. First off, I wanted to pay respects because we were there on the loss of your teammate Mike Davis and the impact that he had not only on you specifically, but all of your teammates. Talk about that loss to the organization and you. Yeah, it was difficult, uh, JT, just to to realize that we're not immortal. I, I mean, you know, you have guys that are such great players and really great guys. I mean, if you recall, uh, you know, and it's been a long time since the Raiders have really had a secondary like that. I mean, you have one what go to Pro Bowl in the past five years, but we had three guys going one year, and really Mike should have gone that same year. I just don't think everybody could really draw themselves up enough coaches and players around there to vote all four of us in. Uh, but it was a, a really a testament to him, his spirit, his nickname, Mad Dog. You know, and and I just I know that I'll be holding his hand once again. Uh, uh, I'll see him again, brother. Yeah, your your discussion was really important. It had a big impact on me and my wife, who were sitting in the crowd. And I'll tell you, Mark Davis made a really interesting comment that I knew I was aware of, but I never heard it that way. That Mike was the only Raider safety in Raiders history to win two Super Bowls and to consider Atkinson and Tatum and the other safeties, including Woodson, who's going into the Hall of Fame. That's a tremendous accomplishment and a legacy play for Mike Davis. Absolutely. And, and you know, Mike, 6'3", 215, could run, uh, you know, could do a lot of different things. And, you know, second-round pick and, and what, what he did say, made him more relevant because obviously he was a little bit of the glue that helped everything, you know, come together. You know, that's what happens when those guys are in multiple Super Bowls that way. And and he was just a great player, man, and a great guy. And we got along so well. And, and, and you know, we, we fought together. We cried together. We played together. And, and it was such a close group of guys. I mean, we, we have a texting group that texts, you know, probably two or three times a month, you know, and, and Mike – uh, was one of those guys that would get it going, and, and we'd all just, you know, sort of sit there and talk about what's going on and what have you. So, man, great player, great friend, uh, great teammate, all those things. Raider legend Van McElroy's our guest. I think it's very appropriate we have you on after I spent time with Mike Mayock yesterday and how they spent two draft picks at the safety position, and they're trying to figure this position out. You had the luxury to play in the middle of the field and have Mike Haynes and Lester Hayes Two of the all-time greats, and Lester should be in the Hall of Fame with Mike. You mentioned Mad Dog. What was that like for you when you broke the huddle and you knew a team was on the attack and they were going to attack you down the middle of the field, but those corners and their ability to lock down, play the bump and run, be able to make decisions on the fly, that must have been fabulous having the confidence that you had there, Van. Well, really what ended up being is that everybody had confidence of knowing that each person was going to man up and study their position, you know, 
so so heavily that we knew what we needed to do needed to do to help our teammate. Judge knew where I was going to be. Spike knew where I was going to be. Mike knew, you know, they knew where Mike was going to be. And, and really, in in my whole dream world, watching, you know, I just don't know that guys watch the film that that we used to, I, you know. And if they do, I'm not really sure. And this is just me watching the game. I don't really know if they know how to watch film and what to look for, but, mm-hmm. but you know, any of the quarterbacks drops, what, what was going on with the line, all those different things gave me a clue of, of just where I needed to be. And, and oftentimes, if Judge knew that the slant, you know, and certainly the deep post, but the slant for those things that were inside, that receiver, if he knew that somebody was going to hurt him, then oftentimes they shied away from that spot. And it really allowed those guys, and when I say those guys, I'm talking about Lester and Mike, to focus. And, again, I think they played the toughest position in the National Football League because the Raiders, we went, you know, cover one man the whole game almost. You know, we throw a three in there once in a while and some different things. But but they were allowed to play their game, you know, and they had the boundary as as another safety. And then they had me and Mike in the middle as two guys that were going to help them, you know, if anything came across the middle. So it allowed them to really focus on that guy and sometimes get behind them a little bit so they could focus on the quick out, the quick in, the digs, all the different aspects of, of what those what the ZNX were going to be doing. Van McElroy's our guest, once a Raider, always a Raider. Van, you played on a Super Bowl team, and you played on some really good teams. How did you handle the pressure of playing for Al Davis? Because Al Davis was always looking to upgrade. He was scouting every player in the league. He was looking at free agents. What was the battle like for you to keep your position? You were a highly regarded player, but did you feel confident every year coming into training camp? Because those rosters were changing from time to time, and you had a position that you were trying to secure with some legends in front of you. Well, to be clear, my second year, I went to Pro Bowl, uh, was you know, was fortunate enough. I was second team All Pro, and each one of those years it was Ronnie. Why did Ronnie have to be around those days? But <laughs> Ronnie anyway, Lott, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. But but my second year, I went to Pro Bowl and then got some different things. And I actually asked my coach, Chet Franklin, Chet, do you think it's okay if I buy, you know, if we buy a little condo here uh, somewhere? And, and he started laughing. But but it really gets to the point that you're making. I think. A lot of players, you know, during those days and really today, I suppose, you play off, you do play off fear. I mean, how we were scared every game, you know, and when I, I don't mean a scared from, you know, playing against a guy. I mean, the guy was was unbelievable, but the, the fear of failure is always in the back of your head. And I think all it does, at least to the players that survived, caused you to study more to watch more, to look more. And, you know, because if you can get to the simplest part of the games mentally, and it is a simple game because you know, on defense, you just need to know uh, one thing. Is it a run or is it a pass? And if you can get those two things down quickly, you can win the game, you know, but yeah. just trying to get those things down, that you know, quickly. So, yes, to answer your question, it was tough, but that sort of what caused you to, you know, to really play your best every year. Who would you have more fun playing with, Lyle Alzado, Howie Long, Matt Millen, or Ted Hendricks? I, you can only pick one, maybe maybe two. Tell me about one of those two teammates or two or three of them that you really bonded with. It's impossible. You know, I, 
I really bonded with the D line. I used to mess with them all the time. And I'll tell you a funny story. I was always kind of, I went in, you know, the Redskin game when we were playing them, actually, uh, there at uh, Super Bowl, or actually the second game is in Washington. I walked in and, and told them all. Earl was the coach, and I got along with him extremely well, but walked in there and said, guys, I have the secret to this game. And I looked over at Howard and said, Howard, are you going to hold me half your bonus going to Pro Bowl this year? Because he would go. There's no question. The guy was just a stud. But their offensive guard, they had what what's called a counter trail. They ran to perfection. And John Riggins you know, ran that. And their play action off of it was just ridiculous. And, and it really kept you off balance. But there was one guy on the O-line. It was unbelievable. I went back and watched three years of film to make sure it was good every single time. If his hand was down, it was a run. If his hand was up, it was a pass. It was like clockwork. It was, you know, so I walked in there and said that. But I always messed with them a little bit. So one day they decided they were going to come over in our little group as we were stretching and take me out and completely strip me naked. I mean, it was it was incredible. There I was, in the middle of the field, nothing on it. They had taken everything off of me. You know, my proud little thing down there, you know, it was all all there for everybody to see. I pointed, we had a lot of fun. I was very close to Howie, very close to Lyle, Matt. Matt and I are still very close, and, and we had studies together and what have you, and, and uh, uh, we loved the Bible and all that kind of stuff, and, and so we got very close that way. So out of those guys... I would say probably Howie and Matt uh, were the mm-hmm. two guys that I uh, uh, that I hang out with. Van McElroy, as we wrap it up, Van, I want to real quickly before I ask you about the Raiders, one more question: What are you doing in your life today? Well, what's your business? What's your day to day look like? Well, I'm kind of worthless, to be honest with you, JT. I, <laughs> <laughs> I I I owned a business and agency for twenty about yes. twenty five years, and then took it that and. As soon as I uh, got out of the NFL, took it over and built it up, and we had a lot of success. And and we uh, uh, in 2014, I sold the company, stayed on, worked, and, and literally retired about a year and a half ago. So I am I am out of the agent business. I said at 60, this business is crazy. You got to run everywhere and go everywhere, and that's what I was doing. And mm-hmm. and so. Uh, uh, Got out of that, and now I'm I'm looking at it here. I've got about 40 cows. Uh, I've got five grandkids. You know, and I've been married for 37 years. Wow. And you know, we just we have about 200 acres out here, and and uh, I just you know just we're just enjoying life, you know, and doing that part. And and uh, when you you see a teammate like Mike, and and again, you know, talking about Matt, uh, Bob, he here's a guy who literally called me. And it's two years ago, Christmas, Christmas Eve, two years ago, he calls me and all the kids are here, you know, we're having Christmas, everything. He says, well, and my nickname, long story, I had two of them. One was Crash, but the other one was Vanny Wanny. And I can share that at some time. But so he said, Vanny Wanny, it's time to pray, buddy. They were willing, they were willing in the bed into the surgery room to put a brand new heart in his chest. And, and that's just amazing to me. First off, they took the heart out that night. They waited for the other heart to get there. Uh, and so they have to, you know, get them all hooked up to all this stuff that has their blood flow and everything to this machine. They're, the machine's keeping them alive and the heart comes in the next morning and they're ready and they put it in there. But 
you know, this guy has a whole new heart. So you, you sit there and you see that all these guys were so tough. Right. Just big guys, man. You know, now we're losing a few, and it's just hard, you know. And, and uh, to see Mike go like that, and as we we're talking about, and you realize how close that group of guys were. And I, I will say this, and, and not to mm. ramble on here a little bit, but, you know, the Raiders today, I'm glad to see they're, they're grabbing defense, but their defense has just struggled for so long. And I know John, he's a good guy. He wants to win more than anybody. Mike, Mike's a good guy, and I'm just I'm pulling for him. But, man, they got to get a defense that can play. And I'm hoping they, they can and – you know, hoping the quarterback can be the guy. I don't know if he is. You know, John likes him a lot. We'll see. But goodness, you know, we, we had a lot of close ties back then. All the guys are still very close, and I think that's a big part of why we won. Thank you, Van. Tremendous conversation. We'll have it up on the podcast network. Look forward to seeing you again under better circumstances. A bunch out here in Vegas. Thanks for doing this. JT, thank you, brother. Good luck, man. God bless. Good luck uh-huh. to you. Thank you, Van McElroy. Wow. Really deep dive. I'm running a little bit late. Jeff Sherman will join us from the Westgate. Once a Raider, always a Raider. Brought to you by the M Resort and everything they do for us here. He had a huge impact on that team. That Super Bowl 18 team when he came up with the concept of what happened at the line of scrimmage with the Redskin guard who lifted up his hand or put it down. That was a big moment in Raider history. We thank Van McElroy for joining us on Raider Nation Radio. Turnaround hook shot blocked by Joker. Loose ball Composo goes right to the rack. Kick out three-pointer. Oh, it rimmed out. Rebound Joker, and he put it up and in. Denver bounced back. I saw that coming. Too good of a team to go down 0-2 at home. JT, back with you as we go out to Jeff Sherman at the Superbook. The VP of Risk Management joins us every two weeks. We always appreciate his time. Uh, Jeff, let's begin. You're as good at golf as anybody I know when it comes to handicapping. Big picture on Phil Mickelson. What was it like at the Westgate as momentum build starting Thursday into Sunday? Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, who would have suspected that he was uh, he would go ahead and carry through that and end up with a victory. So, you know, he went off at 250 to one pre-tournament. We only had 12 tickets on him. So there really wasn't too much support, but as he went through the tournament, we had him a hundred to one going into the second round, 14 to one going into the third and three to one going into the final round. And that's when we saw action pick up on him was uh, at 14 to one and three to one really. So he was about break even for the book, but handicapping the tournament going in, uh, he wasn't really a handicap. People bet on him for a feel-good story, not so much thinking he would win. Yeah, and I think that's really fascinating to the bettors out there that always bet on Phil over the years, especially in his 20s, 30s, and 40s in the prime of his career. If they're going to bet on golf, they're going to throw 100 or 50 on Phil because he had an outside chance to win. What did you see leading up to this PGA Championship where it just didn't look like Phil would compete and be there on Sunday? Yeah, it's uh, you know he he's been playing on the Champions Tour once in a while, but on the PGA Tour he just hasn't done anything. And even if he had a good round, he couldn't put four together. So the public stopped believing in him. He's always been a, a large liability for us in previous majors. This one, I think people just uh, didn't have any faith in how he was playing on the PGA Tour. So it was very he was very minimally supported. But 
he held it together through the whole week. It was incredible because, you know, the talent that was behind him and even Kepka couldn't put it together. So, uh, you know, kudos to him. Jeff Sherman joins us. Yeah, I really thought Kepka was set up nicely to come from behind and win. Jeff, one more thing on this historically, because you know golf historically. Do you think this happens again? Because I predicted Tiger would do this before the car accident. I thought that Tiger would pick off a major or two at 49-50 because he'd get a track that he knew better, Torrey Pines. It could have been a British Open course, something that he was familiar with, Augusta National. But now I can't go there with Tiger because of the shattered ankle and the car accident. But this is what I was hoping he would do. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say no to it because, remember, Tom Watson almost won the British Open at 59. So it's possible to happen. And the one thing this is going to do is fuel people when Tiger does come back, if he does come back, to eventually support him again, thinking that he can do it in his latter stage of his career. So it's going to give interest to to supporting the guys up in their 40s and, and young 50s. Jeff Sherman joins us. So, Jeff, overall handle for the NBA this year, now that they're not in the bubble in Orlando, compared to now Knicks having 15,000 at home, what's it been like? What's the buzz around the industry with more and more fans coming to these NBA games and how it's affecting the handle? Well, it's picking up, and especially with the playoffs starting. Uh, you know, the, the regular season was tough because you had the injury reports and you had players missing games on a nightly basis. There's a lot of people that didn't trust getting invested in that. But now that you pretty much know who's going to be playing, we see the handle really picking up in these playoffs, and it's been excellent. And We've seen a lot of mixed results, too, with uh, the Lakers losing to Phoenix in Game 1, the Clippers losing to the Mavericks. So you have a little bit more openness to these playoffs right now. Jeff Sherman joins us from the Westgate. You know, when it comes to hockey and the Golden Knights, because we both live in Vegas, I like them being a favorite. They're a talked-about team. But then when you see they can't close out a series at home, and they got to get on a plane again as Colorado was resting. Uh, reset the NHL playoff odds for us. Who are the top three favorites, and what momentum are you seeing at the book? Well, we have the Avalanche a pretty heavy favorite at five to two to win the Cup, with Toronto at nine to two, and the Knights and Bruins at six to one, and followed by Tampa. And interestingly enough, we put up uh, the other day uh, a look-ahead line in case the Knights do play the Avalanche. And we have currently the Avalanche minus one sixty having home ice against the Knights plus 140. So that's available now, and obviously if they don't play each other, it would be a refund. But we thought we'd get that up because of the popularity of those two teams. Jeff, I know you put out sides and totals on all 272 games of the NFL regular season. Walk me through how difficult that is to do with your team, your staff, when you're doing every game already, even before preseason games, injuries, and maybe another blockbuster deal or two. Yeah, that was one of the most taxing exercises that I can recall doing. Uh, you know, you get about two-thirds of the way through, and you just feel like you're scrambled eggs at that point, and, uh, just trying to conclude it. But we have a good team that went through it and talked about each game. And, uh, you know, even from the, the Tampa at New England matchup with Brady's return to at the Patriots, we went Tampa three-and-a-half in that. And uh, every every team is available. So this is something we haven't done before. I know some, t- some places have done sides for every game, but we did sides in total, so – the whole season's up, and uh, you know it was a long process, but it's uh, already we're already seeing some support throughout it. Any movement on Denver, considering Aaron Rodgers uh, clearly doesn't want to go back to the Green Bay Packers, and when you look at season win totals, Denver could benefit the most if they do the deal for Rodgers. Well, we currently have the Broncos at nine under twenty, and we would have had a little bit less if that is not a possibility at all. So I know some places have eight and a half on the market, but. 
uh, we took a little bit into account, and especially the Green Bay numbers that we put up on these. We had to put a percentage weight on him possibly not returning to Green Bay when we put these lines and season win totals up. And uh, we did lean a little bit to Denver about the possibility with that happening. So does it still say there from a handicapping perspective, is is it Denver, Washington, where is Vegas? Who are the front runners if Aaron Rodgers leads, uh, leaves to, uh, to land them? I mean, that's how we feel at this point with Denver, you know, having the most to offer and having a right situation. And, uh, you know, I believe uh, his fiance is from the Colorado area, mm-hmm. Denver area, and that could lean into him wanting to go there. So it looks like Denver would be a starting point if he leaves. You know, if I'm the Raiders, I would try to block that and offer a, a nice package. Not so much even if you need him, but to at least block the division because if he goes to Denver in the division, the Raiders are really on the outside looking in. So you agree with what I've been saying for a month. It's not that the Raiders need Aaron Rodgers or Derek Carr. It's the fact that the blockade move, the block move, could be more important to them if he ends up in Denver. Yeah, I just couldn't even imagine that division they'd have to face, you know, with Mahomes at Kansas City and the way the Chargers are coming up and then Rodgers in Denver. I mean, they'd they'd be so far behind the pack if he went there that I think the preemptive move uh, would be more important than actually getting him. Jeff, finally, we started with golf, uh, the, the U.S. Open. We'll talk to you before that again. Uh, any major odd swings with the U.S. Open after Phil won? Who are the heavy favorites at Torrey Pines? Well, we got John Rahm, the favorite, at 12-1. to 1, and It's pretty much by default because I raised some of the other golfers. But the largest move has been with Phil Mickelson. And you could have found Phil for the, for the U.S. Open at 150-1 to 1 over the last few months. He's been adjusted down to 50-1, to 1, so one-third of the odds. And uh, we've already seen some support for him at that number. So uh, I expect more support for the U.S. Open coming off the major win than we had seen uh, for the PGA at the 250-1 to 1 number. Thank you, Jeff. Always a pleasure talking to you. Talk to you in a few weeks. All right. Thanks, JT. There's Jeff Sherman over at the Westgate, the sharpest book in town, always has been. We appreciate him coming on. Again, think of what it's like to go behind the walls of the Westgate and put together totals, totals and sides for every NFL game. So if you want to bet, I I don't know how you wouldn't want to bet that now. And look out to week 11 or 12 and see something on the board that you like with the team, assuming your team's going to be healthy. The reason why a lot of people don't bet this early is injuries. Not so much an Aaron Rodgers or a Julio Jones trade. That could affect the game. Just the fact that players will be injured and you don't know the ebb and flow of the season, but they put all the numbers up there. Go take a look at it. That was brought to you by Ihole, the new international award-winning ultra-premium tequila with the smooth taste and the fun name. Ihole is the official tequila of our show on Raider Nation Radio, the official tequila of the Henderson Silver Knights. Ihole is from Tequila, Mexico, recognized as the birthplace of tequila. Ihole is smooth and easy to drink, straight on the rocks or in your favorite cocktail Join me ahead of the summer by toasting a Ijole tequila, proud partner of our show.